I ask you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be continuing, as you see, the series on the full armor of God this morning. And we'll be reading the same verses we've read the last three weeks there, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. The Apostle Paul has made it clear that if you are a child of God, it is because you have been purchased by Jesus Christ, redeemed by him, and placed into his family, adopted as children into the family of God. And when that has happened, it's because God has made you who were once dead in your trespasses and sins alive together with Christ. And he's done that so that he can bestow every spiritual blessing upon you. He can shower you with the gifts of heaven, Ephesians chapter 2 says. And through this work that God has done, he's joined together this new body, the church. And through the church, the church will make manifest the mysteries of God to the world. And what should be expected as the church makes manifest the mysteries of God to the world, what should be expected is that Satan, the prince and power of this world, will seek to destroy the works of the church. In order to do that, he is going to attack each and every one who proclaims the name of Christ, the scripture says. And so Paul is urging us, he's urging us to be strong in the Lord and be ready. And by that urging that Paul gives for us to be strong and be ready, he wants us to know that God has given us absolutely everything that we need in order to fend off the schemes of the devil in order to proclaim the good news of Christ, in order to stand firm in this day and in this time, in this everything that we've been given, Paul describes as the armor of God. So take it up and put it on, believer, he encourages us. And so as we look together this morning, we've seen this armor comes in two parts. We're going to look at the last piece of the first part, those pieces, those three pieces that are strapped to our bodies. We saw first, of course, the belt of truth, then the breastplate of righteousness. And now this morning, we're going to see shoes for our feet that bring the gospel of peace. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 13. Paul says, after telling us that there are schemes that the devil will be using against us, he says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather, to sing, to praise you, to worship you. God, you are good to us. And so, Father, as we as we gather now to look at your word, we ask that you would help us, mold us, shape us into the image of Christ Jesus, your son, Father, that you would teach us again what it means that we are to strap on shoes for our feet that bring the gospel of peace. And help us, Father, to understand this truth this morning and to leave out of here even better equipped than we came in to proclaim your good news. All of this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 
When we think about the armor of God and the weapons of the soldier, it is highly likely that we forget about the shoes or the boots that you wear. Those don't come to mind. They're not as glamorous, if you will, as the breastplate of righteousness or the shield of faith or the sword of truth. They don't get the publicity, if you know what I mean, when it comes to armor and when it comes to battle gear. It may be, however, that there's not a more important piece of armor for us to wear. There's not a more important piece of the uniform than the boots, the shoes that you wear. Writing in 1777, General William Smallwood had noticed a problem with the Patriot Army in the Revolutionary War. They'd gone through several winters, and as they continued, he had recognized that the soldiers could no longer march. They could no longer continue. Many of them did not even have proper footwear. He said, the march of the troops through the frosty roads has cut out the soldiers' shoes. And by being barefoot, they are rendered unfit for duty, he said. One of the great things that happened in that Revolutionary War on the side of the Patriots was that General Smallwood wrote to General Washington asking for some permission. As he went around trying to get boots for his soldiers, many of them at that time were so hard to find. Many of the boots were so hard to find that they cost upwards of $50, he said. $50 in 1777 would amount to about $1,200 today. General Smallwood, though, developed a plan. He would take those soldiers who were uh, not quite equipped for battle, who, who weren't best on the front line, and he sent them to New Jersey. And there in New Jersey, he established a shoe factory. And there in that shoe factory in Newark, this uh, general was able to oversee the making of shoes for the Patriot Army. And as he oversaw these making of shoes, he was able to equip them. And in no small part was this move by General Smallwood, no small part did it play in allowing the Patriot Army to win over the British in the Revolutionary War. Again, many don't consider the boots or the shoes as vital or important. But with shoes unfit for marching, with shoes unfit for standing, with shoes unfit for battle, most assuredly we will not be prepared and we will not be ready to fight. And as we consider the army of God, the armor of God, we also don't want to overlook the absolute necessity of the shoes that we wear. The absolute necessity of what we put on our feet and what they mean for our constant marching in our everyday battle for the Lord and for his truth. So this morning as we look, we get to see these gospel shoes, if you will, these gospel boots. As the Apostle Paul said in verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So as he speaks of the breastplate and the belt, now he goes to the shoes that you need to strap on in order to be ready for the battle. These shoes that are of vital importance. And these shoes are the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's important for us now, to, I think, to understand what's being said here. Let's go through then and talk about these boots. These boots are boots of the gospel of peace. What is the gospel? There's probably no more important question that we need to ask each other every single day than what is the gospel? There's probably no more thing that we need to have nailed down and understood this morning than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You see, gospel simply means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that he has come. And many of you may say to me, Josh, I got that. I, I understand that. Well, praise the Lord. Let's talk about it again. I'm thankful all the time because I've been so encouraged by many of your comments about my preaching and you'll come up and most of them have been encouraging. Some of y'all, some of y'all fine, but you come up and you simply say, thank you for always speaking about the gospel. And I want you to know that I preach every single Sunday morning and every single Sunday morning, the gospel should come out of my mouth. If it doesn't, let me know. And if I were to preach every Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, Saturday morning as well, then every time I got up, I'm not going to apologize that the gospel must be proclaimed. You see, as one old preacher said, every time he gets into the pulpit, he preaches as a dying man to dying men. And though I may never, ever preach again, so the last thing I want to do is get up here because as far as I know, this may be the last time I proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to you. And the last thing I want to do is get up here and not leave you with the gospel. So let's understood what it means to strap on the gospel shoes for us. The gospel itself, the gospel can be, must always begin with God. It doesn't start with us. We understand that God, the holy creator of the universe, he is the one who made all things, defines all things, and holds all things in his hand. God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything out of existence so that the scripture says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything that you see belongs to him and is his. And so in that sense, because he's the creator, he gets to make the rules. Y'all made up games with your brothers and sisters growing up, right? And you always fall over whose game this was because who's ever game that was, you get to make the rules and sometimes change them in the middle of the game, if you know what I mean. But the Lord doesn't change his rules. He's established his rules from the foundation in the beginning. And he said that if you're going to be here living on this place under my rule and authority, here's how you must live. And God has made man and woman in his own image to worship him and to enjoy him forever. And all he's called us to do is be obedient unto him. The gospel begins with the holiness of God as our creator and our ruler and our sustainer. But then we also recognize the position that man is in. We also recognize that while God is where the gospel begins and he has called us to live holy unto him, he sets the rules. Man made in God's image did not follow God. In fact, they turned against God's rules and they rebelled against him. They rebelled against his truth. They rebelled against his authority. They rebelled against his ruling over them. And because of the rebellion that man is in and still is in, as the scripture says, because of that rebellion, man deserves death. And the only way forward for now is not in his or her might, but in in their own might and in their own strength, they only deserve death. The payment for sins is eternal. And that payment for sins is found in an eternal hell because they denied who God was and they denied his decrees. So instead of following after the holy creator God, they have turned against him. Instead of uh, bowing down and following them in submission in life, they've turned against him and rebelled against his rule and authority. God is holy creator. Man is sinful, rebellious creature. That's where the gospel begins. Just to put it simply, you've, you've heard before the old country preacher, hopefully in order to get anybody uh, saved, you got to get them lost before. 
So in order for us to understand the gravity of our situation, we need to understand that we have to answer to a holy God who created us and made us and formed us in his image. But instead of answering to him, we've rebelled against him and turned against him. And so now what's the only way forward is for us to pay for our sins in an eternal hell unless something happens. Unless something changes. And so here the gospel becomes good news to us that even though we've rebelled against God and turned from him, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a, of a virgin and placed here on earth, fully God and fully man, to bridge the gap that no one else can bridge. And that God, that Jesus who came for us, he lived a perfect life. And there on the cross, he died for our sins and took our place. For God so loved the world, this unlovable world in many ways. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. That is where it is. Jesus is the good news of the gospel. Though we were lost and dead in our sins, rebellious and turned from God, Jesus came to unite us again, to die for our sins, to take our place and redeem us and make us his own. He took our sin. He took our punishment. He died in our stead. The gospel doesn't just end with those things. God, man, Christ. It ends with a response. Because the gospel by very nature demands a response. And I don't just mean one time when you were six like myself or, or seven or eight or nine in Bible school. What I mean is every single time the gospel is proclaimed, you respond to it. And me, as a child of God, I've heard the gospel over and over again, and it never gets old to me. It never gets stale. It never should get stale to any of us to be reminded I was once dead in my trespasses and sins, and God made me alive. I was once lost, and he found me. I was once undone, and he put me back together. I was once separated from him, and he brought me near. Even more than that, I was once an alien. I was once outside. I was once gone away from him, but he welcomed me back into his family and adopted me as his own. That is the gift of the gospel. And every time we hear it, we respond to it, and we say, praise God for who you are and what you've done, and we live in light of it. Here we see that the response must always be there. And as the gospels proclaim, you're responding even now. Not just a one-time thing, but an everyday, all-the-time thing. Every time I preach, every text we go to, as a dying man to dying men, we proclaim the gospel. As the only hope of life and peace. And that's exactly what he says here. He says, we put on this gospel of peace. What does he mean when he says this gospel of peace? We recognize that when God created the heavens and the earth and he made it all and he formed Adam and Eve in his own image and placed them in the garden, there was perfect peace. There was perfect peace between man and woman, between man and the earth, and ultimately between man and God. But in Genesis chapter 3, we find the great disturber of the peace entering into the garden. And that disturber of the peace is the very one who's looking to scheme against us even now, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. The thing that the devil wants more than anything else is to bring not peace, but chaos. He wants not to bring peace, but he wants to bring fighting and, 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 and not peace, but turmoil the relationship between God and man was severed 
and enmity and strife through the rebellion of sin came. And though the blood, now through the blood of Jesus, what we believe and what we know is that those of us who are separated and in enmity and strife with God can have peace with God. We can have peace with God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. He has come and through his death, he has brought peace. And as Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. What do we know about this? We recognize that the God of peace will take the great disturber of the peace and he'll crush him and put him away so that he no longer can disturb the peace that only God can bring. Christ alone. Christ alone can bring the lasting peace that we are looking for. Christ alone in the midst of chaos can bring the peace we hope for. And this is what he came to do. If you look back over with me, just flip there in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13. He says, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, uh, read that in the sense of you who were once in rebellion, you were once in distance, you were once separated from God, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is the very work that Jesus came to do, to tear down the walls of hostility between God and man, to remove the barrier of rebellion that came because of our sin and to reconcile man back to God and bring him back. Remember, the Bible is not a book about how we find God. The Bible is a book about how God has come to find us and has reconciled us back to himself. This is the peace that we long for. This is the peace that we're looking for. This is the peace in the midst of the chaos and strife that everybody wants, whether they recognize it or realize it or not. It's kind of like Jesus when he was resting in the front of the boat during the great storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples finally woke him up and said, do you not know what's going on? Just as Jesus rested at peace in the midst of the great storm, we too can rest in the Lord in the midst of the chaos around us. I was stunned by the emotions yesterday. I wasn't prepared for the emotions of thinking about September 11th after 20 years. You know, I remember my grandparents talking about exactly where they were. These vivid, uh, my parents, these vivid images of exactly where they were when the man landed on the moon or something. I thought, wow, that's something else. I remember things growing up. I remember, I remember, you know, when President Ronald Reagan, I remember the young time hearing President Ronald Reagan was shot. I was six years old or Remember when he said, tear down that wall. I remember that. We were watching that on TV. And those are big moments. But there was nothing like September 11th, right? There was nothing like that moment. I was in seminary. I was studying in seminary. I was taking a mark class. And for some godforsaken reason, I'd signed up for an 8 a.m. class. That's the dumbest thing you could ever possibly do. (laughs) So I got up and I went to class and I was studying under Bob Stein, one of the great 
great hermeneutic scholars in the in, in Southern Baptist life. And I was studying under Bob Stein on, on Mark. And we were doing Mark in the Greek and we were walking through it. And I remember he led us out of class and I was walking back through uh, the school and there it was about 8.50. And the lobby, which usually had nobody in it, was packed. And I walked through looking what was going on and seeing that TV in the tower there smoking. I said, this is something I need to get back to my house. I got back to my house and cut on the TV and watched the rest of the events that day. Didn't think about that. It was emotions. But I also remember in the aftermath of it and the great peace that people were looking for, right? That great peace in the midst of chaos because what it reminds us, what it reminds us is that we're not in control of this world. What it reminds us is that at any moment, at any moment, the things we hold most dear can collapse and disappear. And you know what? Over these last couple years, we're reminded of the same thing. Whether it's a terrorist that flies into a building or a minuscule little virus that enters into our body, what we recognize is in this world, we don't have control. We're not in control of these things. We can't control these things. No matter what we do, we can't keep them away from us. No matter what we do, we can't stop them. So in the midst of this chaos, what is it that we're longing for? What we are looking for is a peace that surpasses all other understanding. What we're looking for is a peace that can only sustain us in the midst of chaos and turmoil. We're looking to be asleep on the boat like Jesus was whenever the chaos was around us. In the same way, our hearts are at rest with the Lord, knowing that whatever goes on around us does not ultimately affect us or change our destination. That however it is the Lord may call me home, I'm still going to be home. Amen? And so ultimately, we're looking for that kind of peace. We're looking for that kind of peace. And Jesus says, that's what I came to preach. I came to preach that peace that surpasses everything you can count on or everything you can know. I came to preach that to you, Jesus says. And in proclaiming that peace, in proclaiming that peace, what we know is now we have something that the world longs for. And we have something that the devil himself cannot shake. He cannot shake. So he says, put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. What does that mean then, put on the readiness? If you go back in our, in our passage there, he says for us to, we want to withstand the evil day having done all, stand firm, stand therefore in verse 14. And when you think of stand, by all means, we think of the shoes that we wear. Stand therefore, most certainly this imagery is for one standing firm, standing firm with the shoes set on their feet, their breastplate of righteousness on, their belt of truth on, their shoes on their feet, ready for battle, standing firm against the attacks of the devil, if you will. Many things we, we must remember that what battles are all about, what wars are all about is gaining ground and territory. Every battle and everything is about who owns that piece of property that you're standing on, who takes that ground, who takes that territory. And what, what Paul is telling us here is that through the gospel of peace, Jesus has proclaimed his place. He's proclaimed his territory and we put on the shoes of the gospel and we let the devil know in our defensive posture, if you will, you cannot come here. You can't gain ground on me. And the last thing we want to teach the devil and get him to understand is we're not going to give up any ground either. 
We stand against the accuser of the brethren. We stand there against the accuser of the brethren and we don't have to back down and we don't have to back up. Why is it? Because whatever accusation he can throw at us, not only do we have that breastplate of righteousness that is there that causes those flaming darts just to, to bounce off with no effectiveness because we claim the righteousness of Christ. We also have the gospel of Jesus that every day we get up and we say, I have been born again. I'm no longer who I once was. I'm now who God has made me and you can't have any of this. We hold the position that has already been won. When we strap on the shoes of the gospel of peace, we hold the ground that has already been won. We resist the temptations that the devil throws at us. We don't go back into bondage. We are free. We are free. As Galatians 5.1 says, Paul writing to the Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, he says, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The thing the devil wants us to do is to go back into our sins and to go back to those things that we once loved and that we once longed for, trying to convince us that that's what we need or that's what we want. And what we know when we understand the gospel is those things are just husks and those things are nothing compared to what we have in Christ. So the last thing we want to do is fall for Satan's schemes, his lies, his lies that he throws at us that seek to place us in bondage to sin again, that seeks to place us in bondage to the things that so beset us before. We are free from those things. The gospel of peace sets you free. God knows best. God knows best. And what's best for us is to stand firm in the gospel of peace and don't give up ground heading back into temptation, heading back into sin. Rest in the gospel. Stand your ground. You are covered in Christ. You have your belt of truth on. Satan cannot attack it. He's a father of lies. You have righteousness of Christ covering you. Satan has no power over that. His accusations fall short. You have the gospel holding you fast. You need not run because God has gained all the ground necessary. You have truth. You have righteousness. You have the gospel. Many agree and understand, and I think that is exactly what Paul is saying that we stand firm in the gospel. Don't give up any ground. You hold your ground to the truth. Many argue that this is the meaning. This is the only meaning of this text though. And I don't think that's true. We're surely to put on our shoes. We're surely to stand ground. We're surely to take that defensive posture against the attacks of the devil and give him no ground. But I don't believe what was meant here when we put on these gospel shoes that we're just simply to remain defensive, but also offensive. To help us understand the meaning of these gospel shoes, we can look at the prophet Isaiah. Let me remind you that the prophet, uh, uh, that Paul is, of course, he's looking there. Remember, he's writing this letter from prison and he's chained most likely to a soldier. And as we've mentioned, he's looking at the armor that soldier is wearing and bringing this up. But for us to think that Paul just kind of came up with this looking at the armor would be wrong. That armor that the soldier's wearing probably reminded Paul of what the prophet Isaiah has taught. Because as the prophet Isaiah wrote, he wrote about the armor. In fact, you can find all the pieces as you survey through the prophet. 
We find them all in scripture. Isaiah 11, 5, the prophet writes, righteousness shall be the belt of the waist and truth the belt of his loins. In Isaiah 59, the people are lost in their sins. Their feet run to evil. They're blind. They walk on gloom and the way of peace they do not know. But the Lord will send a helper himself. It will be one who puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, the scripture says. In Isaiah 49, 2. We learn that the hero will come to rescue his people and he will have a mouth like a sharp sword as he comes. That sword is the word of God. In Isaiah 52, 7, we read the prophet saying, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace. The language of gospel shoes as many have said come from isaiah just as we see the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of of of, uh, salvation they come from isaiah and in isaiah he's teaching us so we can learn what i think paul is meaning and what the context is here even when we look at isaiah In Isaiah 52, the one who has beautiful feet upon the mountains. In this passage, this is the voice of the watchman over Israel. And what the watchman has done is not only does this watchman who's traveling looking, this watchman sees that salvation has come. The watchman, of course, has two jobs. Ultimately, his job is to let them know when enemies are coming in, right? He lets them know when the enemy is coming, when, when they're marching toward the city. We need to know if the enemy is coming. But here in Isaiah 52, the watchman's job shifts. He's not telling them that the enemy's coming. He's telling them that salvation is here. Salvation has come. So here, this imagery in Isaiah 52 of the one who stands on the mountains and brings with him the good news and his beautiful, with his beautiful feet, the one who stands there and comes, he's traveling over the tops of the mountains proclaiming salvation has come. Our Lord is here. Our God reigns. He's traveling quickly as he can to tell the good news. In Isaiah 40 verse 9, we see the same thing. When a prophet says, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The proclamation of the watchman is peace has come. Good tidings has come. Salvation has come. Yahweh reigns. Our God reigns. This is the message of the herald. And in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, he's saying, The one who brings that message across the mountains to the people that not just the enemy is here, but salvation has come and our God reigns. That one has beautiful feet. Light casts out darkness. Amen. And just as we do not give up ground to the enemy, so we are to take ground from the enemy. Just as we don't give up ground to him that has already been won through the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we are to take ground from him that he uh, unrightfully has. We're to take the ground that rightfully belongs to the Lord because what the scriptures say is that soon the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And soon from the coastlands to to the mountains, the glory of God will become evident. So what we do with our gospel feet is not only stand firm in the truth, but we proclaim and we herald as the watchman dancing over the top of the mountains, your God reigns. Salvation has come. Go to a high mountain and say, behold your God. Because of what Jesus has done, 
The one wearing gospel shoes would not only resist the evil influences of the powers and withstand temptation, but the one wearing gospel shoes will also carry the attack into the territory of the enemy by sharing and proclaiming the good news to others. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, we hear that great word. For everyone, y'all got that down? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed, Paul? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Here Paul uses Isaiah 52 to say that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now somebody's got to tell them about it. And the great treasure of the gospel, the great gift that we have, is we get to be the heralds dancing on top of the mountains proclaiming salvation has come. He is here. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. I have had the privilege of serving so many times overseas and my favorite place is in South Asia. In South Asia, I learned about beautiful feet. Most people there that I serve with don't wear shoes. And I must be honest with y'all, feet aren't the prettiest things in the world. Y'all know what I'm saying? Especially those who've lived their life barefooted, walking around. Or maybe have some sandals or some flip-flops they wear. I learned beautiful feet from my friend Prasad. In my office, I've got a picture. I think I, I, I've gotten a little high-tech and I brought that picture here for you today. There's Prasad's feet. I remember preaching, Prasad was my interpreter for some time, been my interpreter for, for years. We went one time to a leper colony. The, Indi the uh, government says there are no more leper colonies. We went to a leper colony. In that leper colony, there were many theirs. And leprosy, if you don't know, left unchecked will eat away the body. It starts on the end of your fingers and the end of your toes and it just begins to eat those digits away, if you will, and it'll, it'll end it all. But in the middle of that leper colony was a little church. And there as we walked in, I never have been felt so humbled in my life to come in and it was my duty that day to preach to the lepers there in the colony. They taught me more about the gospel than I possibly could teach them. We got to singing and they were singing loudly, praising God. And I'm looking around and it was just me and Prasad there that day. And I don't know a lick of their language. And so I'm looking around and it's getting to be my turn and Prasad's not there. I don't know where Prasad is. I'm looking around. I can't find him. I can't even ask anybody where he is. They don't know what I'm saying. And there as I'm sitting, I'm looking out the front door. And here comes Prasad. Now Prasad's about five foot six, 110 pounds. Here comes Prasad carrying a leper on his back. He brings him in and he sits him down right in front of me. And he looks at me sweating, pouring, huffing and puffing. And he said, okay, sir, tell him Jesus. And that's what we did. You see, what we know in scripture is beautiful feet don't come with fancy shoes on them, right? They're not manicured and they don't look perfect. Beautiful feet come with a message. 
And that message is Jesus Christ our Lord reigns and salvation has come. And where that is proclaimed, no darkness can stand. Where that is offered up, where that is offered up, peace is offered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we do today is we come with whatever we can bring, the shoes on our feet, but what matters most is the message in our mouth that those shoes carry, right? What matters most is that we don't just stand firm with the gospel and don't give up any ground. We take the ground of the devil and the enemy and we proclaim light into the midst of darkness. Our God reigns, he says. My question to you today then, my question to to you is what about your feet? Are they strapped with the gospel of peace? Are they carrying that message into enemy territory? Here today, maybe it's you. Maybe you need to stand firm. You've been giving up too much ground to the devil. And today, you need to stand firm, having dedicated yourself again to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that salvation has come and there's no reason for you to fall back into sin anymore. You turn from it just as you repented maybe before you turn from it again. Today's the day of that. But not only that, maybe today's the day you recognize the great gift and opportunity you have to be that watchman that bounces from mountain to mountain proclaiming our God reigns. Salvation has come. Let's pray together. Father, help us today to fulfill your word and your truth. You are faithful to us, God. Help us to be faithful. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who came, suffered on the cross, died in our place, taking our sin, was buried and rose again. We thank you, Father, for the gospel that has come to us and has traveled from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop throughout the centuries. And we heard that gospel, Father. We thank you for those in the room who heard that gospel, that our God reigns, that the enemy is not supreme, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we repent and turn from our sins and trust in him, we can have life. God, we thank you. We thank you for the beautiful feet that brought us the gospel. So God, this morning, help us. Make our feet beautiful for someone else, maybe. Help us, Father, not to give up any ground to the devil, but to to gain ground on him by proclaiming Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is, God, to know your gospel, to rest in it. What a privilege it is to proclaim it, to proclaim it. Help us not to take either of these privileges for granted, but help us to strap on our gospel shoes this morning. All for your glory. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I'll be standing here to receive any of you today that lead to stand firm in the gospel or proclaim the gospel. We'll be standing here to receive. Let's stand together and sing.